Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Made by Podster. The incident, known locally as the Kurkanumi triple murder, refers to two murders and a manslaughter that took place in 1990 in the village of Vols in the southern Finnish municipality of Kurkanumi, about 35 kilometers due west of Helsinki. The victims were 41-year-old Veiko, his 35-year-old wife Berit, and the couple's baby girl Jessica, who was only three months old. The three victims were found dead in their bedroom, and it was clear that they had been victims of a barbaric crime. But even now, more than 30 years after the murder, the case remains unsolved. There is no murder weapon, and no precise time has been set for the incident. But there's a lot more we do know, and I'll tell you about it here. You're listening to On The Trail. My name is Ali Murphy, and today I'm telling you about the triple murder from Kirkanumi. Before we begin, this podcast contains details of murder and violence against adults and children. If you are in any way likely to be affected by such accounts, please consider carefully whether you wish to proceed. And if you do, settle in for quite an odd story from a part of the world not associated with such gruesome acts. Veiko was originally from Savonia, a southern region nearer Russia than Sweden, but had apparently moved southwest to Kirkenumi as a child, as the priest who blessed Veiko's grave was his confessor when he was a teenager. Berit, on the other hand, had lived in Kirkenumi all her life. At the age of 18, Veiko became a parent for the first time. His eldest son was born in 1966, and a few years later came his second. Veiko and the mother of his children had been married at one point, but divorced after a while. Then Veiko met and married Berit. Berit had also had serious relationships in the past. She had at least one ex-husband, and had also been with another man with whom she had had twins, who were about nine or ten years old at the time of the murders. Veiko bought a plot of land for himself and Berit in the village of Vols, near Kukunumi, in a remote location near a forest. The land was sold to them by a man who lived on the neighbouring plot. The distance between the two properties was just under 100 metres, so the houses were not right next to each other. They lived in a very sparsely populated area, and to this day, there are not really any services left in the village and the Oosterby Road that partly runs through Vols has no streetlights, so if you drive there at night, it really feels like being in the middle of a forest. Vaco bought the land in 1987, and two years later, the house was completed and they moved in. Berit and Vaco's house was a single-storey red brick house. 
It's a bit difficult to say how smart or modern the house was at the time, but from pictures of the house, it looks like a lot of effort was put into renovating it to a nicely decorated, neat and well-maintained condition. In some old newspaper articles, the house was even described as luxurious, so it was certainly on the pleasant side by the standards of the time, or at least by the standards of the locals. Both Vaco and Berit had brand new, fancy cars, and Berit's car even had customised number plates. The house was completed when the murders took place, but other buildings were still under construction on the site. Vaco, described in many sources as a building contractor, had also set up a transport business, which was apparently doing well. After the house was completed, Vaco had started building a warehouse of some kind on the same plot of land as the house, where he could store the equipment belonging to his company. In addition to Vaco, Berit and their little baby, Berit's twins from the previous relationship, also lived with the couple. But the children apparently saw their father regularly. Vaco's sons were already grown up and had left home. Not long after the murders, Vaco's sister gave an interview to the crime magazine Alibi, where she talked about her brother, his character and his family life. According to her, Vaco was very happy in his relationship with Berit, and this happiness bothered some people. According to her, someone or some people could not tolerate the family's happiness, and the birth of Berit and Vaco's daughter Jessica was therefore the last straw that triggered the anger of one or more people who had resented the harmonious family. However, not everyone saw it in quite the same way. In 2011, the Finnish tabloid Il Tusanumat reported that some relatives of both parties had made it clear that they did not find their relationship appropriate. Vaker's reputation for being aggressive and awkward has been reported in various media since his death. According to interviews with Vaker's sister, Vaker was a fair and honest man who took great care to do things properly and keep things straight. He did not tolerate half-truths in any matter. In an interview with the Helsingin Sanomats newspaper in 2001, a detective involved in the case described Vaco as a tough businessman who, for example, did not hesitate to go personally round to people's houses in the area to collect debts related to his business. According to the police officer, many local residents were also annoyed by Vaco playing the role of what one might term a civilian sheriff. For example, he used to take every drunk driver he met to the police station himself and he intervened in almost every offence he observed. It is quite possible that this kind of behaviour may have annoyed some people. According to those closest to him, it was precisely Vaco's uncompromising and arrogant nature that had enabled him to set up a successful business, even though he had never been to school or studied anything. Vaco's relationship with his two adult sons was discussed much in the media, but Vaco's sister said in an interview that there had been arguments between the father and the boys and that they were not on good terms. Vaco was annoyed that the boys had managed to get themselves into debt at a very young age and in connection with their debts, the boys apparently sometimes asked their father for money. It is therefore quite reasonable to assume that Vaco had had conflicts with many people in his life and that his temper may have been a problem for some. There is very little information about Berit, Vaco, and their baby daughter Jessica's last days, or at least not much about that period has been made public. At midday on Saturday the 28th of July, it is known at least that Berit, Jessica and Berit's twins were at home. The twins were supposed to have been at home all day, but had spontaneously decided to go to their father's house to spend the night. It is unclear who came up with this idea and whether Berit brought her children to their father's house or whether their father came to pick them up from Berit and Vaco. However, there is no real information about how much time the children were to spend with their father. It was July and the children were on summer holiday, so it is possible that they would be staying with him for more than just one night. Vaco's eldest son told us that he came to visit his father on the Saturday to return a drill he'd borrowed but his father was not at home, so he left the drill on the kitchen table. Vaco's son had been there when Berit spoke to her twins about going to their father's house for the night, 
but he quickly left when his father was not home. Police have been silent on how much they know about the family's activities on the Saturday before the killings. In an interview with Sierra magazine in 2009, for example, the then head of the investigation into the case said that they had a pretty good idea of what the family had got up to on Saturday. But the closer you get to Saturday evening and night, the less information is available. And the investigator did not want to reveal anything more about what happened in the interview. In an old newspaper article published only about a week after the murders, a man who lived next door to the family said that Vaco and Berit had had visitors on Saturday. According to the neighbour, one of the visitors was Vaco's eldest son. The neighbour's statement therefore suggests that there may have been other visitors to the couple's home during the day. However, the police have not commented on this and there is no mention of this visit in recent press reports. What is certain, however, is that Vaco, Berit and their three-month-old Jessica went to bed on Saturday night in the waterbed in their bedroom. Vaco and Berit were reported missing on Tuesday, the 31st of July. No one had seen the family since that Saturday, nor had the family tried to call anyone, nor was there any answer at the couple's home. The family's only neighbour, the person from whom Vaco had bought his plot, had said that he thought the family had gone on holiday because the house seemed so quiet. According to him, there were usually people coming and going every day. Almost all sources say that Vaco had a business meeting scheduled for Tuesday the 30th of July, which he did not attend. When he didn't answer his phone, the participants at that meeting sought him out at his home address. They knocked on the door, but no one came to open it. Vaco and Berit's home had had three main doors, a front door, a back door facing the forest, and a door leading to the garage but from there, there was no access to the house itself. When no one answered the door, Vaco's business associates began to feel troubled and called the Kukunumi police station to express their anxiety about Vaco. The police arrived, spent some time knocking on various doors in the house, and then decided to break in. According to another version, it was Berit's colleagues who became concerned about the family. Berit was a supervisor in the cleaning industry and was apparently due at work on Tuesday. Her colleagues went to Berit's and Vaco's house because Berit didn't turn up for work. When no one came to open the door, they called the police. One detail in this story that suggests that the police were initially reluctant to break down the door was that they had required Berit's colleague to sign a form stating that he would be liable if the door was broken down for no reason. However, this is just a rumour. It is most likely Vaco's colleagues who visited him at his home address, but if you Google the case, this story comes up. I suspect it's not true, simply because Berit had had a baby a few months earlier. Would she really be back at work already? And if she was, who was looking after the child? Vaco was also working every day, so he wouldn't have been at home with the child either. If Berit had been at work, someone would have had to look after Jessica and that's obviously why Babysitter wasn't the first person to raise the alarm. When the police finally entered the house, they were met with a gruesome sight in the bedroom. All three, Vaco, Berit and baby Jessica, were lying dead on the bed. There was a large amount of blood on the bedroom floor, mixed with water that had run out from the waterbed. Otherwise, the home was clean and all belongings appeared to be in place. Only in the kitchen were there signs that something might have been sought for. There were no signs of forced entry on windows or doors, so the killer had either entered the house through an open door or window, or had their own key. There is conflicting information about whether the doors of the house were locked when the bodies were found. Almost all sources say that the front door of the house was definitely locked, but some sources say that the back door facing the woods would have been unlocked. In a few different interviews, 
Police officers involved in the investigation said that the culprit or culprits had locked the doors behind them, possibly to prevent the bodies from being found immediately. The fact that the police broke into the house also suggests that both doors were locked when the bodies were found. Both Vaco and Berit had been subjected to brutal violence. The police say that two instruments were used, but despite lots of rumours and gossip, the police have never revealed what weapons or objects had been used to kill them. However, the fact that there was a huge amount of blood in the bedroom and that the waterbed had been smashed in the three murders says something about the crime, and therefore there is a popular theory that the weapon was either a knife or an axe of some kind. Initial press reports spoke of a knife, but later the police said that they didn't wish to elaborate on the murder weapon. Veiko and Berit's baby had not been the victim of violence. She died when she drowned in the pierced waterbed, and therefore her death was investigated not as murder, but manslaughter. However, police say it is clear that the perpetrator noticed Jessica in the bed. As manslaughter expires after five years and aggravated manslaughter after 20 years, no one can be convicted for the child's death, even if the perpetrator is caught. The fact that Jessica drowned due to the waterbed has been reported many times in various media, but the current head of the investigation has refused to confirm that the baby drowned. He has said that the documents explaining the cause of death are almost always secret, and that he therefore does not want to comment on the case. Police say the first thing the perpetrators probably did was to kill Vaco, as he might have been able to defend them if Berit had been attacked first. As both parents were found in the bedroom, it is likely that neither of them woke up when the perpetrator entered the house. Vaco's sister told Alibi magazine after the crime that everyone knew that Vaco was a very heavy sleeper and that he would have not awoken up even if the house had been turned upside down. According to her sister, Berit was a lighter sleeper and could easily have been woken up if there had been a noise or some rummaging around from inside the house. This detail can also be seen emphasised in a video clip where the police come forward and describe verbatim that, at dawn, the muscular Vaco slept heaviest. It is possible and quite likely that Berit was woken up by the noise of Vaco's murder, but she may have been focused on baby Jessica and protecting her from the situation rather than fleeing or defending Vaco. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. It is unclear whether there was one perpetrator or more. On the one hand, one could imagine that it takes at least two people to overpower two people, But on the other hand, one person can also succeed if they act forcefully and swiftly enough. The police theory is that the perpetrator went out through the back door into the woods and then walked through the woods back to the main road where their car was waiting. It is not known how the police came to this conclusion, but it may be that they used, for example, dogs to help them in their investigation. There were very few people living nearby and Vaco and Berit's nearest neighbour said that he did not hear or see anything unusual at the time of the killings. This neighbour said that his dog often spent nights outside in the garden of the house, but that the dog had not reacted to any noises or movements. According to the neighbour, the dog would have barked for the whole village to hear if, for example, a gun had been fired nearby. The exact time of the killings is not known, but police say the victims died between 20.45 on Saturday the 28th of July and 10 the morning after, 
although many sources, like the police, suggest that the killings took place in the early morning, which is perhaps the most likely time. Many of the village houses were on the main road, while Berit's and Veiko's house was deeper in the forest. Coupled with the darkness and the scarcity of passers-by or motorists in the early morning, this would have given the perpetrators complete peace and quiet to carry out their deed. For the same reason, it is also not surprising that the police had hardly any eyewitness accounts. One of the big mysteries is how the perpetrator got into Veiko and Berit's house without having to break a window or door. According to Veiko's sister, Veiko was careful to lock all the doors and close all the windows at night. Berit often slid an extra key to the house under the front door mat, but it was only there when the twins were at school and Berit was not at home to receive them. So, as it was summer holidays, there was no reason to put the key under the mat. I could not find any information on whether other family members or relatives had a key to the house, but it is worth assuming that this has probably been established. It could be that Vaco had simply forgotten to lock the back door facing the forest and that the perpetrator had gained access to the house through this door. Over the years, there have been rumours, especially on various discussion forums, that the television in the family's living room was on when the police broke into the house. But this rumour has never been confirmed or denied. The weather conditions at the time of the events made the investigation difficult from the start. When the bodies were found, it was raining outside, and the rain may have had time to destroy any evidence outside the house. It was also difficult for investigators to establish which of the footprints found outside belonged to whom. The farm was under construction, so there had been a lot of construction workers walking around, and the family frequently had visitors. Water leaking from the broken waterbed destroyed some traces in the parents' bedroom, but not as much as might be expected or as much as the worst-case scenario might have been, according to police. The bed had a tub to protect the area around it from water in case it broke, and some of the water had got trapped in this tub. According to investigators, the leaking water impeded the investigation of the bedroom, but did not make it impossible. Although everything in the house was tidy and things were in their proper place, Further investigation revealed that items had also been stolen from the house in connection with the murders. The perpetrator had taken money from Vaco's wallet, possibly a large amount, according to Vaco's sister. It was known to those close to him that Vaco may have had several thousand marker in cash in his wallet. When Vaco's wallet was found in the family home after the murders, it contained only a few coins. In addition to his wallet... Vaco kept the company's money in a letter tray rack on the kitchen shelf. Another thing that many people knew about him, according to those closest to him. Both the rack and the money in it had now disappeared. In total, just over 20,000 marks had been taken from the house, which in today's money is a little over 5,000 euros. In addition to the money, Vaco's notebook had also disappeared from the kitchen a notebook that the media have called either a debt book or a notebook in which Vaco had written down some of his business-related things. On the other hand, some sources have also said that there is no exact information about what the notebook contained. The notebook has puzzled both investigators and curious outsiders. What was the perpetrator's reason for taking the notebook? Could it have contained his bloody fingerprints? Or could it have contained information that could have led investigators to the perpetrator of the murders? It is also strange that the perpetrator took a heavy letter rack with him, and not just the money in it. Some wild speculation has even suggested that a sharp and possibly heavy metal letter rack could be one of the tools used in the murders. From the beginning, both the local police and the central criminal police were involved in the investigation, which immediately became extensive. According to the police, they checked, for example, all street traders and other random passers-by who might have been in the area at the time of the murders. 
Police also checked, for example, for patients who had escaped from nearby psychiatric hospitals or prisoners who had not returned to prison after their temporary release. People living in the village of Vols were asked, but as it was summer and holiday time, many homes were empty while residents were at their summer homes or on holiday. The immediate family was also questioned and investigated, and the whereabouts of the adult sons on the weekend of the murders were of particular interest to the police. Vaco's eldest son, aged 24, said he was in a bar at the time of the crime. I could find no information on the alibi of the youngest son, aged 19, but early in the investigation he was ruled out as a suspect. Very shortly after the murders, apparently only a few days after the bodies were found, the police announced that they had arrested a man born in 1951, Berit's ex-husband, for the murders. But this was a different person from the man that Berit had had children with. According to an old newspaper clipping, a rumour had quickly started circulating in Kirkunumi that Berit's ex-husband might have had something to do with the murders. The ex-husband was detained for two days and questioned thoroughly, but the police eventually decided to release him because no evidence could be found that could link him to the murders. But even after his release, police told the press that they wanted clues from the public about a grey Toyota Hyus car which is exactly the kind of car Berit's ex-husband owned. Police were also interested in any eyewitnesses who had been seen in the Vols area at the time of the murder. It could be that the arrest of Berit's ex-husband was a kind of just-in-case. Perhaps their relationship was bad and the police wanted to question him immediately. If there were rumours about the ex-husband among the people of Kirkunumi before the arrest... It may well be that Berit and the man didn't get on very well and that this was widely known. In the end, the police found no evidence and investigators subsequently said that they were able to safely rule him out as a suspect. A few weeks after the murders, Veiko, Berit and Jessica were buried in Kirkunumi and the funeral was attended by almost 100 people. As the triple murders shocked and captivated the whole of Finland, a journalist and a photographer from the Iltaletti newspaper were also present, and a lot of newspaper space was taken up by a long report and pictures from the funeral. Hard to imagine that it would still be done today, or that the relatives would allow it, but at the time, it was perhaps not looked upon so badly. In September, a month and a half after the murders, the police announced that they had arrested a suspect, a man born in 1966 who was close to the family. It soon emerged that the arrestee was none other than Vaco's eldest son, who was 24 years old at the time of the murders. The boy was arrested on the basis that there was a probable motive, which means that there were some circumstances linking the person to the crime, but the investigators needed more information. In general, arrests on suspicion are only made in cases of serious crime, such as homicide. This practice can be called a time-out, which gives police officers extra time to work because it deprives the suspect of the opportunity to tamper with or destroy evidence or otherwise interfere with the investigation. One of the biggest pieces of evidence justifying the suspicion was the discovery of his fingerprints in Berit and Vaco's bedroom. In addition, the police had found bloodstains on their son's clothes, but the methods used at the time were not advanced enough to extract DNA from them. However, the police were trying to establish whether the blood was human or animal, and if human, what type of blood it was. These bloodstains are a salient detail, as they are not mentioned in any of the recent newspaper articles about the triple murder, only in old newspaper articles published at the time the boy was arrested. According to police comments, they also had other evidence that led them to suspect Vaco's son. But investigators never told the media what this other possible evidence was. According to one article, police had also become aware that the boy had written a specific date of death on his father's obituary in the newspaper, even though no one knew whether the victims died on Saturday or Sunday. However, this might sound like a rather weak reason to suspect someone 
Even though there are two possible dates of death, one of them had to be written in the obituary, so it's perhaps not surprising that people would start guessing. Vaco's son had said early on in the investigation that he had been in a bar at the time of the murder, but apparently no one was able to confirm the man's alibi. Perhaps partly because there is no exact information about when Vaco, Berit and Jessica were killed. Vaco's son was living with his girlfriend in Helsinki at the time of the murders, but his girlfriend was travelling elsewhere in Finland on the weekend of the murders. At the time, the son was working as a model and studying at a Swedish language business school in Helsinki. Soon after his arrest, rumours began circulating in the media that money was the motive. For example, Veiko's sister said that both Veiko's sons had taken out loans of 60,000 marks after the murders, which was said to be a small amount compared to their other debts. Relatives also told the media that the eldest son in particular had had disputes with his father and some of his other relatives over money and debts. As I mentioned earlier, according to Veiko's sister, the father and sons were not on very good terms at the time of the murders. A newspaper article also stated that the father and sons had grown so far apart that they did not bring each other up in conversation with others. As the newspaper article stated, Veiko never said anything about his sons, and the boys never said anything about their father. After Veiko's son was arrested, information was leaked that he had called Veiko's neighbour in the middle of the night and asked him if he had seen anything strange or unusual at the time of the murder. He'd also sworn to the neighbour that he would not tell the public about his possible sightings. An interesting detail is that the son hired the same lawyer from Kokunumi who had previously represented Veiko in court. But I have no further information on what Veiko himself had needed a lawyer for, perhaps to deal with issues related to his business. One week after the arrest, Veiko's son was released. Despite the arrest, the police had found no further evidence linking the boy to the murders. The conditions for continued detention were therefore not met, and the boy was released. The boy's lawyer had previously told the media that he denied responsibility, saying he had had nothing to do with the deaths. The lawyer pointed out that it was quite natural that the boy's fingerprints were found in the family home and in his parents' bedroom. As a member of the family, he had, of course, visited the house several times. The last time, the day before the murders, when he was returning a drill he'd borrowed from his father. According to the boy himself, he had visited his father a few times during the summer, even though their relationship was bad. The police also examined some footprints found in the house, and as they did not match the sons, suspicions about him waned. It is not specified whether the prints were from a shoe, a sock, or the soles of his bare feet, but some kind of footprints were found in the house, and it was apparently assumed that they belonged to the killer. I was intrigued by the blood-stained clothes, which are not mentioned in recent newspaper articles. Surely modern technology would have long since established whether the blood on the clothes really belonged to one of the murder victims. So my own guess is that there was another explanation for the bloodstains and that they really came from somewhere other than the murder scene. If the clothes really did have Vaco's or Berit's blood on them, that would be pretty important evidence. Police say they still have a number of pieces of evidence that were found in the house and it's possible that this evidence could help solve the case one day. When asked whether the Kukunumi murders could have been solved if the technology at the time of the murders had been as advanced as it is today, the police officer involved in the investigation gave a rather vague answer. He said that even with all the technology available to help an investigation, not all crime scenes leave clues that can help solve the case. According to the police, the Kukunumi murder scene was a challenge to investigate. Apart from Berit's ex-husband and Vaco's son, no one has ever been arrested or detained as suspects in the case. Police have said that the former suspects, which presumably refers to Berit's ex-husband and Vaco's son, have been removed from the list and have not been suspects for a long time. Over the years, the police have suggested in a number of comments that the motive for the crime could be linked to Vaco and his business. 
During the investigation of the case, police learnt that Vaco and his family had been threatened and harassed before the incident. Someone had made harassing calls to the family's home phone, but the caller had said nothing and had always remained silent on the other end of the line. Initially, the police suspected that the calls could have been some kind of checking calls, perhaps to check whether or not there were people in the house. However, during a year-long investigation, police realised that the calls probably had nothing to do with the murders. Other residents in the area had also received similar nuisance calls. However, Vaco in particular had been afraid of something before his death, as his sister recounted. Although she said that Vaco had no enemies, he had been threatened and felt unsafe. According to his sister, Vaco had received threatening phone calls and, through his company, had been asked to carry out some toes that ended up being a complete waste of time. I'll come back to that in a moment. According to Vaco's sister, Vaco was so afraid of being killed that he had bought a gun, which he always carried with him at work, especially at night. Vaco had also sometimes taken Barit and the child with him on longer working trips because he was afraid to leave them home alone. Perhaps the strangest detail in the whole Kukunumi murder case concerns the so-called Pananen letter that Vaco had received in his mailbox shortly before the murders. In it, Vaco was asked to drive his tow truck to Purama at 23.30 where Mati Paninen, who had ordered the tow, would be waiting with his wife. But when he arrived, there were no people and nothing to tow. The letter had not been sent by post, but had been delivered directly to Vaco's mailbox. Purama is today a ski resort and golf course in Kurganumi, less than 10 kilometers from the village of Vols. In 1990, there was only one ski resort in the area, and the golf course was completed a few years later. The letter stated that the vehicle to be towed was a camper van and specified that it was an MB, which may stand for Mercedes-Benz. The letter also requested a tow to Malmi Vejo, which presumably refers to the Malmi neighbourhood in Helsinki and the Vejo car dealership located there. The police investigation has not been able to establish what role the letter may play in the case, if needed at all. It is strange that the letter was personally delivered to Vaco's mailbox. If someone really needed a tow, why didn't they call or go all the way to the door to personally request the tow? It is suspected that the request to come to Purama was a trap. But Vaco had visited the place a few times and nothing had ever happened and no one was ever seen in the area. The police have since established that Mati Pananen is a fictitious name. All indications are that there was no motorhome to be towed. But why someone would set up a false assignment is unclear. There has been speculation that the letter might have been intended to lure Vaco away from his home, leaving Berit alone with the child. However, before the murders, Vaco had started to take Berit and the baby with him when he travelled, but I could not find any information on whether Berit and the baby had been with him in Purama. In addition, Berit's twins were still living with Vaco and Berit, but it is possible that they had been with their father when Vaco had left. The current head of the investigation into the Kukunumi triple murders has said that investigators also find the letter very strange, but that they have no information on whether it has anything to do with the murders. In connection with the triple murder in Kokonumi, there has been talk of another crime that took place in the same area less than four months earlier. The police have never publicly commented on this other case or its connection to the triple murder, and it is unlikely to have anything to do with them, but I will bring it up anyway, in case anyone comes across the story while looking at this one. In April 1990, a family living in a terraced house in the town of Vekola in Kokonumi spent an ordinary Saturday evening at home. 
The family's mum, dad and one of the two children were in the sauna when the family's telephone rang and the family's other child, aged 12, answered it. At the other end of the line was a man telling the girl to stay at home. The call had apparently been made shortly before a burglary, when a man with a knife entered the house through the balcony. After the burglary, the man asked her where the money was, and when she tried to escape to the kitchen, he continued to question her and cut her clothes with a knife. Finally, she forced him out of the house by shouting that her mum was coming. The girl described the man as maybe over 50 years old, more than 1 meter 80 tall and well-built. According to the girl's descriptions, the man had a long, dark beard, a booming voice and dirty, dark hair down to his shoulders. He was wearing a long, black leather jacket and green jogging bottoms. Police said they had eyewitnesses who had seen the man in the area before. An interesting detail raised in the news report about this incident was that other residents in the area had also received strange and unpleasant calls. I don't know if this perpetrator was ever caught. On the other hand, I don't think his capture was even mentioned in the news. There is nothing to link this case to the triple murder, but it is undeniably interesting that in both cases, someone had broken into a family home with a knife, money was the aim, and members of both families had received unpleasant phone calls. However, Kogunumi does not have that many inhabitants, and it is actually quite rare for a man armed with a knife to suddenly sneak into a home. The distance between Veikola and Vols is about 15 kilometres, so these places don't sit right next to each other, even though they are in the same area. A good detective might see similarities between the first burglary in Veikola and the second burglary involving a man named Veiko, but that might be speculating a bit too much. Over the last 30 years, the investigation into the triple murder has been taken up several times, sometimes very actively and sometimes less actively. The police have released some information to the media about the investigation, but many details are still not publicised. For example, the murder weapon and whether there may have been one or more perpetrators are things that the police still refuse to disclose, citing investigative reasons. The leadership of the investigation has changed hands several times, but both the police and Vaco's sister have told the public that the investigation has been extensive and thorough. However, a rather strange comment was made by a police officer involved in the investigation of the case in an interview with the Helsingin Sanomat newspaper in 2011. When he said that the original investigator on the case had not had enough time to focus fully on the investigation of the triple murder because he was reportedly called to many trade union meetings at the time. The investigation has also suffered from a lack of resources, and in 2011 it was reported that some new leads could not be verified because police were unable to free up investigators to look into the case. In 2015, MTV News reported that they had received information that the KRP, the Finnish criminal police, had been investigating the Kokonumi double murder from a new angle, but the head of the investigation would not comment on whether this was true or what exactly this new angle was. The current investigator in the case has been rather silent about it, but has nevertheless given some interviews over the last few years, with no significant new information emerging. Il Teleti newspaper also interviewed the head of the investigation in the summer of 2021, but this interview did not reveal anything new either. Over the years, jealousy, money and other personal grudges have been suspected as the motive for the three murders. However, the current head of the investigation into the case believes that money was not the only motive. According to him, the perpetrator had the intention to kill. The murders were premeditated brutal and cruel, and were planned in advance. According to the investigator, the money was only taken after the murders. 
In 2015, the investigator told the Ilta Lerdl newspaper that, in his opinion, there was emotion, passion and determination involved, and that the circumstances of the case gave the impression that the perpetrator knew his or her way round the house. This remark strongly suggests that the police believed that the perpetrator knew the victims in some way. And in light of the statistics, this is the most likely scenario, as it is rare in Finland that the victim and the perpetrator of a homicide do not know each other in any way. According to the investigating officer, there is nothing in the case to suggest that the victims were chosen at random or that the act was a sudden whim. The location where the crimes were committed speaks for itself. Veiko, Berit and their daughter lived in such a remote area that it is not a place you go to without a reason. Veiko's sister told Alibi shortly after the murders that she believed the perpetrator was closer than you would think. In 2019, the head of the investigation told Ilta Sonomi that they had a fresh new perspective on the case and that he was absolutely convinced that the case would be solved. The investigator believed that the perpetrator had never told anyone about the offence. What is interesting about this particular interview is that although the investigators have refused to comment on whether there was one or more perpetrators, at least in this case, he speaks of only one perpetrator all the time. He also says that perfect crimes are committed alone and are something you keep to yourself. But on the other hand, he also says that he does not believe that the Kurganumi murders are a perfect crime because he believes so strongly that the case will be solved. Over the years, investigators have said that they have clear circumstantial evidence against suspects, but there has apparently not been enough evidence to make arrests. The house where the murders took place still exists, but it has been renovated and extended over the years. The people who now live there have nothing to do with this case and should, in my opinion, be kept out of it. The house was not sold until three years after the murders. It may well be that the house was not exactly the most attractive place for buyers due to its history. Towards the end of this episode, I will go through some of the most worrying details of the case. Firstly, how the perpetrator had entered the house. The police must have found out who had the keys to the house. Vaco had been threatened in the period leading up to the crime and had been worried about his, his wife's and his daughter's safety, which is why he had taken them on long working trips. Vaco always checked that the doors were locked and the windows closed. Could he really have forgotten to make this check the night before the murders? It doesn't seem very likely given the threats and false requests that had been made the week before the murders, so it must have been very important to him. If the door had indeed been left unlocked, it's a pretty incredible coincidence that the killer or killers happened to decide to strike on that particular night. If Baco was so scared that he had bought a gun and carried it with him, you would think that he would also be very careful about locking doors and windows. Another interesting thing is that Barit's twins went to their father's house the night before the murders without advanced warning. Did the perpetrator somehow know this, or was it just a coincidence that the murders happened when the children were not there? It would be interesting to know how long the children were due to stay with their father. If they were only staying for one night, as many newspaper articles suggest, why weren't they surprised when Barit and Vaco didn't get in touch? If it was a one-night stay and the bodies were found only three days later, you would think that the children's father would wonder why no one came to collect the children or why no one answered the door when they were dropped off. Had they tried to call their mum while they were with their dad? Or were they not in the habit of calling each other when they were not together? It is also interesting to know if the perpetrator realised that the child would possibly drown in the waterbed unless she was lifted out. Did the killer for some reason want her to die too? Of course, Jessica could not have told the police who the killer was or defended herself against them, so as such the perpetrator would have had no reason to kill the child or let the child die. Did they not care about the child or did they just not think about it? In this context, 
It is also interesting to know whether the whole family was targeted or whether it was only one of the parents, but the other was also killed so that he or she could not pass any vital information to the police. The most common assumption is that Vaco was the main target and Barit was killed on the side. But why not the other way around? Perhaps the purpose of the fake towing requests was for Barit to be home alone, or alone with the child at home at the time of the perpetrator's attack. Investigators are apparently confident that the motive for the offences was not simply a financial one. As the victims were found in their bedroom, it is likely that they were not woken up when the perpetrator entered the house. Therefore, the perpetrator could have easily just taken the money and notebook from the kitchen and left quietly without having to hurt anyone. The stolen 20,000 marker, equivalent to around 5,000 euros, may not be enough to justify a triple murder. But people have killed for smaller amounts. According to the police, something had been searched in the kitchen of the house, and a newspaper article clarified this by saying that something had been sought out in the kitchen drawers. I do not know whether this was just the journalist's own invention or whether this information came from the police. If it was the kitchen cupboard that had been rummaged through, it would suggest that the perpetrator took the murder weapon or murder weapons from there, which is perhaps a little odd if the perpetrator's intention was to kill the occupants of the house. Why didn't the person take the murder weapon from his or her home? Why did the person pick it up at the crime scene? Of course, it is to be expected that there is a knife in every household, but one would think that a carefully devised act like this would involve deciding in advance what murder weapon to use. But again, this is a bit of idle speculation, as only the investigators and the killer or killers know what murder weapon was used. It will be interesting to see if this case is ever solved. Who knows? Maybe the police know the identity of the perpetrator but do not yet have enough evidence to arrest them, for now. That's all I have for you this time. Thank you for listening. My name is Ali Murphy. The podcast was originally created by Tilda Laxonen and translated into English and produced by Podster. Tune in next time when I'm on the trail of another interesting case. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.